Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, a coach, and this is not really an episode because we're sitting on probably episode 78 or 77, but instead this is sort of an in-between episode that I was talking about last week with regards to my recap of Ironman Canada Whistler. And I know it doesn't really apply to everybody, but I think I try to keep it, and I will try to keep it in this episode, um, about the ultra-endurance aspect, the prep, the mindset, the technique, the nutrition, the fueling, how the day unfolded, and so forth, so that there are tidbits in here and applications and training implications, as well as prep implications and helpful hints and tips for all of you for your next ultra-endurance adventure. And again, as we've talked about a lot of times, and for those of you new to the podcast, that's what this podcast is about, helping you pull information and learn and apply and train and fuel and hydrate and simulate all these things to the best of your ability for your next ultra endurance adventure, whatever that is, whether that's an Ironman, whether that's a hundred mile run, whether that's a multi-day stage race, whether that's a marathon swim, whether that's crossing the continent or country or multi-day bicycle touring and bicycle events. I mean, there's so many things out there that my athletes, and I'm hearing from all of you that you're engaging in and taking part in. On a side note with that is, for example, an ultra endurance adventure that I'm going to be speaking at and uh, running a panel and round table at in a few weeks in Snow Basin, Utah, is also an ultra endurance adventure that is climbing to the top of Snow Basin, um, a 2.3 mile hike and 2,300 feet in elevation gain. And what it is, is it's a weekend of challenges with regards to how many times you can climb up the mountain. And when you climb up that mountain, you take a gondola back down. And so the elevation gain is what you're looking to achieve with regards to Everest or Denali or Whitney or a variety of different famous mountain peaks that that hike of 2,300 feet in 2.3 miles, you repeat over and over again until you achieve that altitude gain. So again, a different type of ultra endurance adventure, but also something how we need to fuel, prep, mindset, and train for with regards to that. There are always different types of adventures, different types of um, events out there, and all of them fall into that category of preparing for endurance. So that's what today is with regards to Ironman Canada and sort of the insights and the observations I made, as well as the prep I had with regards to Ironman Canada. I hope you enjoy it. So what was Ironman Canada? As I discussed last week, it was a event for me in order to continue to validate, fulfill the requirements for my Ultraman desired entry. And so one of the checklist items on that is that you have completed an Ironman in the last 18 months. And despite having completed 35, 36, 37, I don't remember anymore, Ironmans over the last 20 years, 15 years, I have not done one in 18 months. So 
And that had to be done by August 1. And so that's what Ironman Canada was. From a fitness standpoint, I've discussed before that things were decent. I have plenty of swim fitness and plenty of run fitness with regards to long runs on trails, but not that much fitness with regards to the pounding of the pavement. And pounding of the pavement is just your ability to withstand the impact over many miles and many hours on pavement. And it's a different type of running. And this is also interesting from a standpoint that many seem to think marathon running versus trail running are very similar. And yes, they're both running motions, but again, they're different sports. And when you look at it, a lot of elite marathoners don't do well in trail running. And a lot of elite trail runners don't do the same level of eliteness in marathon running because they require different prep and different training with regards to how the body is going to react to the impact as well as leg turnover, as well as terrain and so forth, strategy and so forth. Now, many of you might say, well, um, elite marathoners do great in trail running. Yes, but not at the same level, right? If you're top 10 in the world as a marathoner, you're not going to be top 10 in the world as an ultra, um, as a trail runner, right? I'm trying to keep it from a percentage of your eliteness in that perspective. So keep in mind, just because I've run a fair amount this spring with regards to getting ready for 100k and my 62 mile run, um, doesn't mean that my ability to run on pavement is that effective. So I had to build that back up. Um, I did not have an opportunity to really build that back up as diligently and long term as I usually like to. Um, I probably did plenty of eight to 10 mile runs on pavement, but not anything in the 16 to 20 mile runs on pavement, which for Ironman prep, I highly recommend for my athletes and I always put them through those paces but also do repeatedly for me because as we get fatigued and as the body is tired after let's say in an Ironman from 112 mile bike and a 2.4 mile swim our posture our form our technique um, starts falling apart and there our ability to withstand the pavement becomes even more crucial so that was part of the prep um, cycling, I did okay in my prep. I had a couple of longer four to five hour rides. I had committed to doing one uh, 100 mile ride prior to Ironman Canada. Um, but because of this year, no coast ride and no Ironman prep, I did very little cycling up until April. And um, so I tried to a little bit uh, crash course, um, crash study for the test here. And brought up my cycling miles a fair amount. I mean, I would say probably a good 200 to 250 miles um, on a few weeks when it wasn't due to travel or vacation. So I probably got in a fair uh, 1,500 to 1,800 miles of cycling um, over the last three months so that I did bring up the cycling volume. And I had some blocks of um, a fair amount of cycling when I went to Boulder to train with a bunch of friends as well as here at home. But again, not the ideal prep that I would usually like to do for an Ironman, but I have a bigger training plan and a bigger um, 
the desired outcome later in the season if I get into Ultraman. And so again, I want to keep my body very balanced with regards to the stress currently on it and knowing that there's more to come and just grow this very gradually. And Ironman this past weekend was part of that gradual build. Sure, it extended my fitness um, suddenly in a single day, but not in the distances and not in the length of time of doing an activity. 10 hours was not something that I'm unfamiliar with with regards to being out there under steady aerobic um, effort. So my, my uh, 100K run was about 10 and a half, 11 hours. And so the engine is ready to go that long. Now, the specifics of it were not ideal, and I'll go into that more later. Now, Canada was chosen because I have a friend who is doing it, as well as um, it's the same time zone. It's easy to travel to. I have a, a few athletes that were doing it, and I have one of the athletes of mine that I coach. She's a coach too, so it was great to catch up with her as well as sort of put myself into that environment. I've never been to Whistler in the summer and I was curious about Vancouver and so it was going to be a fun weekend and it was. It was a ton of fun and it was really nice to catch up with a variety of different people and friends and enjoy a true Ironman weekend from a different perspective that the, the pressure or the outcome is to just finish. Um, and it made made things quite enjoyable with regards to that. It's I'm going up for a weekend of adventure, of exploring a new way to do an Ironman without pressures of having to qualify or looking for a placing. Um, also, with regards to being a little bit underprepared, not a little bit, a fair amount of underprepared, but confident that I will finish and uh, fulfill the validation of it. Now, I had not done a fair amount of research on the course um, with regards to what it would be like. Um, and then, of course, I did not expect or it, it was unusual, I should say, that the temperatures were in the mid-90s and they were dealing not with record heat, but quite hot days leading up. And, of course, for that weekend turned out to be 95 or 96 degrees on race day. But there again, the key to understanding that, and I talked to this about, about this with a lot of my athletes, is understanding that the day will unfold with regards to temperatures and environment and your abilities to perform in it um, differently. And what I mean by that is at 6 a.m. when the race started, it was still in the low 60s, well um, within... I, uh, the temperatures to really perform at your best. And by the time it really got hot and uncomfortable and where you have to sort of main, uh, change your strategy, it wasn't until 11 o'clock or noon. And so when you think of that for your own events, you want to keep in mind, I have five to six hours before this day becomes something where I need to change my approach, my strategy, my pacing, because the temperatures are so high. And then within that, it's also about when will my core temperature and my body overheat from the inside, and therefore, I will have to change my strategy. Just because it hits 85 at 11 o'clock or 1130 doesn't mean you're yet overheating. 
that might take an hour or two of being exposed to those temperatures before you personally overheat. Pouring water on you, pouring water in you keeps your core cool, and so you can manage that. At some point, you can't keep up with the temperature being high, and your body catches up to the temperature that's around it, and it will get overheated, and therefore, strategies, pacing, approach needs to be changed slash adjusted. So, of course, I didn't control any of that, but I knew that in the days coming in, so my mindset and my prep for it was already locked into that. And then, you know, terrain-wise, no, I did not factor in that this was 2,600 meters of climbing, which is, I would say, about um, eight to ten, eight to 9,000 feet of climbing. Now, my Garmin said 10,000 feet, but I'm not really sure what the accurate number is for Whistler Canada on those three loops. And it was the first year that they've made it three loops, so I think the altitude changes or gain was a little bit more than they advertised because, again, I don't think my Garmin was that wrong. And I spoke to a few others, and they also said, it was closer to nine to 10,000 versus seven and a half to 8,000. But so in prep, I didn't think of it with regards to big climbs. Um, I just thought of it more of getting my fitness good enough to be able to withstand 112 miles on a uh, tri bike and then still be able to run effectively. Um, as many of you know from my previous podcast, I used a bike of one of my um, coaches' athletes. So I borrowed a bike, and those setups were pretty easy to mimic um, back of my bike back home. I didn't go quite as aggressive as I, my bike back home and tri bike, A, because I haven't spent any time in the tri position, TT position, and B, knowing that there's going to be a lot of climbing in this, in this event, in this race. Um, I knew that the time in the aero position wouldn't be long and sustained. It would instead be more for descending and for um, each loop, the flatter sections to lock in sort of a comfortable position where I can hold the aero position, but it's more less pedaling and more downhill. So um, I wasn't too worried about how aggressive the position was, more about just being comfortable for descending and using maybe 10-minute windows um, seven minute windows of staying truly aero. If you're thinking of that with regards to your own training, keep in mind if you're doing like a Florida or you know a Cozumel or an Arizona where you're sitting on flatter terrain for longer periods of time, you want, yes, to build up the tolerance and the ability to stay in the aero position at different cadences, at different power, and really be comfortable staying down for long periods of time, even Hawaii. Um, but for something where you're doing a lot of climbing and it's constantly moving in and out of the pos TT position, as well as in this case, there was an Ironman and a half Ironman on those three loops. So there was 3,000 competitors. So you're coming up and paying attention to not run into people. It's a different um, prep with regards to holding that position. So um, my main focus on setting up the bike was that I was comfortable climbing on it and I was, it, it's a, it's a Cervelo. I ride a Cervelo. I ride all Cervelos at home. And so it was easy to m mimic those positions pretty equally to back home. So yeah, 
so that was that. I mean, going into it, um, I knew it was going to be hot. I knew after uh, previewing the course a little bit, on a, I rode one loop on Friday, um, that it was going to be a lot of climbing. And so I started shifting my brain towards race mode. Now, what does race mode mean? Race mode means that I start visualizing how I want the race to unfold, um, how I'm going to fuel, how I'm going to hydrate, how I think I'm going to feel based off of past experiences, especially what hot is going to feel like, what um, side effects or consequences of different um, mistakes might be, um, how I want to fuel through the aid stations, what it will look like when it's going to be crowded on the course, what do I want to um, anticipate or predict with regards to how the fullness and beginners at different levels of the course and doing a 70.3 versus an Ironman, um, how that will be, how that will look, especially going through aid stations, maybe riders riding dramatically slower or stopping at aid stations while I'm trying to ride through, let's say I'm on my third loop, they're on their second loop, and so forth, as well as um, pretty strong, uh, aggressive, uh, riders from the 70.3 that might be coming through on their only loop now passing me or um, riding with me with regards to that uh, bike course. So it's it just you, part of that prep is just visualizing how the day will go, um, visualizing how the run will go and what I will need and making sure that I have everything available, my bags and my gear and my special needs bags and so forth in order to prep for the race. Um, swimming wise, there were some questions if the, if the wetsuit might be a bit too hot and um, temperatures might be too high if it's worth swimming without a wetsuit and so forth. That never crossed my mind because I don't have the gear slash other suits or the type of um, triathlon race suits in order to not wear um, a wetsuit. I don't have those with me, nor was I planning on it. I, I wanted to use the wetsuit to my advantage and um, swim as fast as I possibly could. Early in the morning, cooler temps, I was hoping that the wetsuit would not be an issue. Um, I also had a great opportunity, in hindsight, uh, the week before swimming on the East Coast, I swam in a you know, in a country club pool that was way too hot to have as a competitive swimming pool with regards to practices or swimming or masters or workouts. So I was overheating in that swim basically the three, four times I swam there that week. But in hindsight, that was a great prep for being a bit too hot in my wetsuit this past Sunday. And it didn't bother me that much. Um, I felt pretty good on the swim. And as many of you have might have seen that swim went about as good as one could expect. So um, one could actually ha possibly have. So I'll, I'll take that result. And yeah, so that was sort of the Friday leading into Ironman. Saturday, as many of you know, Ironman is about the bags and bike check and so forth. And it's just hot and it was 95 degrees and you're exposed and you got to take buses to different transition areas. And I wanted to stay hydrated and stay off my legs. And of course, there's logistics and so forth. But what I've always said is if you just slow down and take your time and know that this was what you were going to do today and minimize draining energy and just do everything in a very relaxed, positive, 
way, despite things maybe taking longer, or despite things maybe not going as smoothly as you want, or despite others maybe draining energy from you or wanting to make it more complicated or getting frustrated. I find that the day before, the more you slow down and the more you just sort of relax into a very relaxed, steady, um, slow pace, the more energy you're actually storing and preparing yourself for what will be battle on the body the next day. Um, Pro cyclists taught me this a long time ago, the ones that I've been friends with, on their ability to slow down and do everything in motions that are just (laughs) frustratingly slow and everything just takes on a whole new meaning of speed (laughs) and patience that... um, But it's amazing because you realize it is truly saving a ton of energy when you're not rushed or frustrated or doing anything in a way that you you feel um, overwhelmed or out of control. And so that day, you know, goes by pretty slowly and you're hydrating and you're eating in prep for the next day. Um, I go bland food as of Saturday or the day before the race as of uh, pretty much breakfast, but absolutely at lunch. Um, That last day before an ultra endurance event, I always go as bland as possible. I want nothing in my system that's going to in any way be of question with regards to um, stomach stress or GI stress or uncomfortableness um, that might be passing through my system the next day or just in general, um, not absorbing the calories and the nutrients and the foods that I currently am putting in there. So that's sort of how the days prior to the event went, Um, very relaxing and very uh, reacquainting myself with the needs of Ironman, all the little things that you have to think of and spares and CO2 cartridges and all that, as as many of you know. So off we go. It's race morning and uh, up at 3.45 and quick breakfast. I don't spend too much time on breakfast or staying at home and being awake for a while prior to the event, um, it was a six o'clock gun, which means we started at 6 a.m., which is the earliest I've ever started for an Ironman. And so I was up at 3.45 having some coffee and some breakfast um, pretty quickly. And that breakfast consisted of some yogurt and granola, blueberries and bananas, and uh, probably a good two cups of granola and yogurt. each, so probably a good seven, eight hundred calories there, and then two pieces of toast with jam, no butter, um, for another four hundred ish calories. So I definitely got in eleven, twelve hundred calories, and even if conservative, it was a solid thousand. Um, I had some fluids um, besides coffee, some water, and then a um, Precision Hydration 1500 packet to get some sodium in me for the day because I knew it was going to be hot. And then we headed down to the uh, transition area where you grab shuttles to the swim start. Um, That was a little bit longer of a process. And so 
by the time we got to the swim start and transition one, it was 5.30, which gave me a whopping 30 minutes before jumping in the water. Um, quick setup on the bike, quick tires pumped, quick change, because I don't like to um, put on my race gear until about 10, 15 minutes prior to the event. And then quickly into the line of the swimmers. And so a couple of things happened there. I quickly realized that I didn't put on any sunscreen. Um, not ideal on a long, sunny, hot day. And then also I didn't add any uh, food and um, nutrition to my uh, transition bags. Or um, I didn't get a chance to put my salt and my drink packet in my transition two bag earlier while waiting for the bus. Just got online quickly and was hoping to move through that pretty quickly in order to get to transition one. So that would come back later in the day to not haunt me, but I would have liked to have that extra salt slash um, hydration packet. Then also, uh, because of the time limit, um, starting so early and so forth, I didn't get a chance to use the restrooms, porta potty. So again, it's one of those things where you hope it's going to be okay. And um, luckily, it was okay. So uh, lined up pretty early, not pretty early, about uh, 5.50, about 10 minutes prior. Um, luckily, being a swimmer, I can just walk to the front and work my way in there. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of swimmers up there, and a few of them are always fighting for that first three, four, five spots in line. So I was happy to oblige and work my way back um, further into the corral and find some quiet space on the side in order to, you know, just start visualizing the swim and think what I want to do in this swim and how I want it to feel and how I'm going to prepare myself for the next 10 hours of effort. Um, and I would say I was about 25 people back at this point, and that was just fine by me. Um, gun about to go off, so they move about the first 10, 15 people past the timing pad and down to the water's edge. Everybody else is lined up behind that, two, three, across, um, and then many people deep, of course. Yeah, and then the gun basically goes off. But before all that happens, before the gun goes off, you know, it's just preparing yourself for what you know will be a steady day and, um, wanting to know that I'm going to take advantage of opportunities or fitness when it does present itself, but otherwise staying pretty conservative. So with that in mind, the gun goes off. I uh, am the second group in the water. And I notice immediately that the front group is swimming a terrible line towards the you know, the main part of the swim course. It's a two-loop course whereby from the beach, you work your way out about hmm, 150, 200 yards to really get to the buoys and the main part of the course, the circle of the course. And uh, I quickly took my own line and uh, had empty water. 
in order to sort of settle in and uh, get my swim going. Now, it's interesting, I remember, and this is a couple days later now, but I remember observing and feeling what so many of my athletes talk about, and it's been a few years for me as well, having done an Ironman, especially in a wetsuit. But even for me, who is a solid swimmer, um, gets that racing heart rate, anxious, constricted feeling those first two, three, four minutes of swimming. Um, the body is just not familiar with the pressure of a wetsuit on you um, combined with effort and restriction. I am not sure exactly what it is, but we all get it. And this is more for all of you to help you understand that it is completely normal. And it doesn't mean you necessarily have to roll over on your back and take your time. It is happens to, I would say, almost everybody. And being familiar with it and knowing that that's just a normal reaction of the body and the constriction and the higher heart rate and the breathing being limited and so forth, as well as the nerves for the day, all probably um, merge at once into this flood of sensations and feelings. And so, you know, specifically feeling that and noticing that I was, I was not laughing, but had a little smile because I was like, ah, that's right. This is what all my athletes talk about. And I remember I get this too. It came back to me pretty quickly and just backed off slightly in the effort, lengthened the stroke, got a regular breathing pattern in so that the body can feel a rhythm, can feel a breathing pattern, and then it went away after about 30, 40 seconds, and I was able to settle into a regular freestyle stroke. Two-loop course, pretty smooth of a swim um, because I'm on the front. The, the first part of the swim is pretty empty, and you can really settle into a good rhythm and swim in your own clean water. As many of you know, I'm not a fan of drafting and swimming in any condition because to find somebody that not only is going to be reliably steady my speed and effort and output, but also that I trust their sight lines, as well as that when you're swimming, you don't re necessarily realize if they're going fast enough for you while you're trying to stay on somebody's feet. And it just sets the tone for the day that now I'm focusing on somebody else's effort, race, output versus mine. And all day, my entire focus is to be focused on me and my sensations and my effort and my pacing and my desired outcome. So I'm a big proponent of doing your own thing and not putting your race, your event, your outcome already on the first discipline of a Ironman triathlon into the hands of somebody else. Because too often also, coming out of the swim, People are surprised that they swam slower than they thought they could because they put their pace into the, onto the shoulders of somebody else. And working and gliding and feeling the water yourself and determining your own line and swimming steady is still going to be faster than on anybody else's feet. Now, <clears throat> exceptions to that, of course, are world-class open water swimming events 
let's say at the Olympics and so forth, where you have the 10K open water swim, you know everybody there is an elite swimmer. So of course there, the drafting effect, or maybe even in the pro field where the swimmers know each other, and the pros know each other, and therefore they know who they're swimming behind and what kind of quality swimmer they are or their past splits that you know they're going to swim a 50 or a 51 or a 49, or be a 55 type of swimmer, or a 58 type of swimmer, so you can gauge that as part of your inputs right away. So coming through the first loop, it was pretty conservative, and I would say on the swim in general, um, there was never any push or effort. I would say this swim was probably one of the easiest swims I've ever done in an Ironman, or at least can remember, because I felt very, very comfortable, controlled, relaxed in the wetsuit. I did have a little wetsuit rip um, right at the start. Um, when putting it on, it ripped at the hip for me. So I had a little hole on the side. So it was sort of funny feeling that a little bit, but not that it was a drag or any type of effect. It's just you can feel the water coming in in a spot on your body that you usually don't. But Overall, just nice and smooth, nice rhythm for the swim. And my goal was on the second loop to stay connected and powerful with my stroke, probably giving up some speed, but overall feeling really good about my freestyle swimming. Now, swimming is something that's the most frequent and common workout for me. So despite travels, despite training, despite what I'm getting ready for, I'm always swimming three, four times a week. And over the last two years, I've added um, a component where I swim once a week or once every two weeks, a six to eight to 10,000 yard swim practice just to overextend myself in distance. Again, volume, creating the fatigue, zone two swimming for lack of a better term. Of course, I'm not wearing a heart rate monitor swimming, but effort level is low, but the volume is high. And it's really displayed itself in swimming for me for open water and longer swims in that I feel quite comfortable from three to 5,000 yards, from three to 6,000 yards. There's no drop off and the distances seem to go by quicker. And I saw that on Sunday in the swim in Ironman that that once a week, twice a, uh, twice a month, um, super long swim of two and a half, sometimes up to three hours has really paid off because the speed was relatively the same on the second loop and the swimmers that were ahead of me quickly came back to me. They had overextended themselves. And in general, I was surprised on the swim how many people start way too fast on the swim. And yes, I tell a lot of my athletes, start with a higher turnover, higher intensity for two, three minutes, and then back off into a longer, smoother, steadier rhythm. But these guys were swimming way too hard for the first, I would say, three quarters of the first loop. And then all of a sudden, they started swimming a lot slower going backwards versus maintaining a steady speed. By the time the second loop came around, it was uh, starting to get quite full on the course. You now had Ironman folks who got in a few minutes later than me, as well as swimming slower. They were looking to be 130 to two-hour swimmers. So yes, I do lap them. And I work my way through pretty aggressively. I swim an inside line when I swim an Ironman swim. 
That means I swim inside the buoy line and at the turn buoys, the red ones, the corner ones, those are the ones I swim around. But otherwise I swim pretty smooth just inside the buoy line. It's the same distance of the course as long as you're doing the turn markers and it's just way less congested and you have a better sight line going down the buoy line that way. Ran into very little traffic, was able to quickly get around the second loop, and I caught the front two guys pretty quickly on the back half of the second loop where I increased the effort somewhat, not necessarily always a pace increase, but the effort increase. And many of you know that description for me with regards to having you swim like that in a, in a workout or as an open water workout. Just because your effort increases doesn't mean your pace increases, but you're keeping your pace the same, but you're increasing the effort. So let's say on an open water swim like this, first loop is 85%, second loop is 95% in effort, but the time is desired to stay the same. I'm not really sure what my loops were because I didn't take any time, but I feel they were probably pretty consistently the same speed. Got out about ooh, three or four seconds bef uh, behind two uh, front swimmers in front of me, which was great because once you come off the second loop, having somebody to sight with and the way they're swimming and line that up versus the buoy line always allows you to make the smartest of the two decisions. Am I going where they're going and the line they're swimming? Or do I want to take this buoy line? It gives you an extra input for making sure that with currents, especially in ocean swimming, as well as with um, how the buoys are sometimes lined up, which isn't always a perfect line, you can see how things are shaking out in front of you if you have some swimmers ahead of you. Um, in this case, I didn't realize until after the race that because I started and came over the timing mat a good 10-15 seconds behind those guys, my 2-3 seconds behind them out of the water meant that I was actually 5-6-8-10 seconds ahead of them. So felt great coming out of the water and through transition one, which was pretty efficient, but uh, already noticed then I had forgotten my sunscreen. So out on the bike I went, and here we go, 112 miles on the bike. So out on the bike we go. Keep in mind a three-loop course, and temperatures were going to rise pretty dramatically during this bike course. A couple of strategic aspects of it were, of course, the knowledge that the first loop was going to be empty. Um, the second loop, I was planning on seeing some 70.3 competitors on that loop. And finally, the third loop being really congested due to uh, now all the Ironman folks on the, the loops, as well as all the 70.3 um, cyclists on the loop. So my pre-vision um, was to push a little bit harder on the first loop, um, be okay with being uncomfortable a few times on the first loop, try to find a steady sensation on the second loop and engage the how the, the loop is going to unfold with regards to extra riders on the course. And the third loop to sort of not hang on because that sounds more desperate, but more 
um, try to navigate through consistently without giving up too much time. Now, early on on the first loop, I felt that the bike was working well and comfortable, um, but I did notice that there was a lot more climbing, not a lot in, in that I was overwhelmed, but I did observe that the climbing was going to be significant on this course and doing it three times, meaning temperatures rising as well as fatigue of that much climbing on this course was really going to take its toll. Now, I didn't know my fitness with regards to that, so I adjusted a little bit with regards to how I wanted the loops to go. I stayed a little bit more uh, aggressive on the first loop as I had planned with not being shy to push a few times, but then on the second and third loop, I backed off to basically a steady this is how I would just ride this even on a training day, not because of intensity or effort, but just because this is what my fitness on the bike is going to provide today. Um, and sure enough, of course, the, the, uh, the back end of that bike loop, the third loop, people were slowing down dramatically as well as was I. But I was pretty fortunate that the climbing never bothered me that much. Um, I felt good on the first loop and the third loop on some of the longer climbs. And I also noticed after the first loop that strategically the course was basically, the first half of the loop was basically net all downhill to get to the far end of the, of the course where there's a climb. And then that climb after that return down that hill from the climb is all uphill to the top of the course to finish loop one. And so... Um, knowing that and observing that, um, I changed it more to being okay with being non-aero and knowing that the climbing is coming up as well as stay, the temperatures will be more exposed on the climbing part of the loop, the second half of the loop. I um, allowed myself to stay aero and push in the aero position and relax in the aero position and eat especially in the aero position and the downhills and the, where the free speed is, as I call it, on the first part of the loop. Um, I'm a big believer that as we ride our courses, that if we're rolling downhill or have a tailwind or coasting and we're going 24, 25, 26, 28 miles an hour, that's a great time to eat and drink because you're doing it while rolling at 25 plus miles an hour and you don't have to pedal and can focus on getting the food down and yet you're still moving at a good pace. Trying to eat while going uphill or putting forth a bigger effort and you're out of breath um, is probably not the best timing because you want to sit up a little bit. You want to allow the stomach to process the food a little bit. And so if the effort's very high, I've found that that increases the likelihood of stomach distress. Um, doesn't mean it always happens, but that's how I started setting up the course. Doesn't mean I wasn't going to eat anything in those windows, but maybe smaller bites or use, again, downhills or flatter sections to eat on the way up the course. Fluids were fine as well. Things that on them did display themselves were, for example, special needs was at the end of each loop or at the start of each loop, I should say. And so by the start of second loop, I didn't need my special needs things yet. 
but I knew I was extending myself to not get my special needs, needs things until the start of the third loop. So I did have to take on some calories from an aid station to bridge that gap. What it ended up being on those three loops, I ate three Cliff Bars for probably a total of 770, 80 cal calories. I ate two uh, Cliff Chew packets, 180 calories each, so that's 360. So now that we're at about 1,100 calories. And then I also had two wafer waffles from Goo, and those Stroop waffles for 150 each, that's 300. So that made it 1,400 calories, not counting the three bottles of Precision Hydration 1000 that I took in. And they have about 64 calories each, of which I count only half, as I always do for fluids. I only count half of fluid calories towards my total count. And so that made it another 100 calories approximately. So I had 1,500 calories on the bike, which I was very happy to have consistently and without any type of worry get in. I got hungry a few times on the bike, which is to me a great sign. It means my stomach's properly processing as well as it's the signals of hunger are working. I'm not overloaded with regards to sensations or bloating. Um, bottles, I would, went through five bottles of water, three bottles of precision hydration for a total of eight bottles for a five and a half hour bike split. I poured a couple of bottles on me, but overall, that was the total tally for the bike. So yeah, I did get hungry on the second loop um, far end, but I was still working off what I had on the bike, which was two Cliff Bars, one Waffle, and one um, Choose from Cliff. So that makes it 500, 650, 730 calories I had with me for the first two loops. That's why I took on that extra um, sleeve of Choose to make it um, an equal about 500 calories per loop. And that worked out great. And then, yeah, overall, the bike itself, the sensations were really good. The physical um, aspect of it, of my prep, I did run out of energy, mood, effort, um, fitness. I would say at about 100 miles, but mentally working through the last 12 was okay. Temperature-wise, things started heating up, but nothing ever got uncomfortable. And as I said, I went at an effort level on loops two and three that were quite comfortable. And while I could have ridden longer energy-wise, I just wasn't that comfortable on the bike. And muscularly, I was getting fatigued from not having cycled enough miles over the last few months. And when I say I was getting uncomfortable on the bike, it's just because in general, five hours on the bike, I hadn't spent some time on the bike that long and the tolerances for that, as well as no matter how conservative or relaxed my bike position was, it's still a new position with regards to being in the TT position. And it felt very comfortable for the first 80 miles. It was no issue, but you know, at some point the body is just saying, all right, we haven't practiced this enough and now you're asking me to do this quite this long. The main observation I would make on the bike is how mm, dramatic 
um, a others mispace their bike rides because a lot of people that passed me came back to me on the second loop um, and that they are sort of herky-jerky on their effort. So they'll start fast and then they'll slow down and then they'll speed up again and then they'll slow down. So the lack of good pacing there was quite dramatic. Um, again, I haven't done an Ironman in three years, so surprised to observe that. I was also surprised to observe the gear from a standpoint of how aggressive or how uh, yeah, how aggressive the gear is with regards to position and drinking and how many people are actually sitting up on their bike, hands on their pads, hands on the um, handlebars when they should be arrow on in the wind um, and the flatter sections. That was dramatic as well as, um, you know, the higher end bike gear with people on it with lack of fitness. And this is... Um, always surprising to me because I, I I should say I had the unique opportunity because I was on loop two and three with a lot of um, Ironman folks who are newer or slower or 70.3 folks who are slower. Usually I don't get to see that that dramatically, but because I was on that three loop course with so many different types of athletes, it was interesting to make a bunch of observations. And one is one of those is you know the twelve to fifteen thousand dollar bikes, but an engine on those bikes that isn't fit enough to take advantage of the quality they're purchasing on the bike. So, in general, it's one of those where the engine is the body. It is you. It is the fitness you've built. It is the consistency you've trained with. It's the foundation you have in order to make that engine propel the bike, the gear, the chassis, the the steed forward. And so no $12,000, $15,000, $20,000 bike is going to go any faster if you, the engine, aren't fit enough on it or aren't fit enough for it, right? A lot of these bikes from a time trial perspective and a wind tunnel perspective and from an efficiency perspective or um, where the technology really makes a difference um, is going to be at numbers and speeds, numbers being wattages, that are a lot higher than what people are riding them for. It's way more technology than the athlete needs. And as many of my athletes know, when they ask me what kind of bike they should get or what they're considering of purchasing, I always say, listen, let's build our fitness, let's build the engine first, and then the bike that you purchase or you upgrade to, or the power meter that you add, or the heart rate um, uh, um, watch that you upgrade to, will all display itself because of the limits that you've run up to with your current gear. But I always say, even on a very entry level bike, you can win an Ironman. Um, if on a very entry level heart rate monitor and watch, you can run a sub three hour marathon. Again, it's the engine. It's not the gear. And, you know, that's another part of this past weekend that was a big highlight to me that I knew I am fit enough to get on whatever bike or put forth any type of day that I needed in order to um, display the fitness. And so 
what I would say to everyone and always to all my athletes, let's build the best possible engine so you can take that engine and apply it to different events, different, um, you can get on any bike, you can get out there and just do it because fitness trumps gear at any point in time, always. Fitness trumps gear at any time. So the other beauty for me on the bike, you know, of course, there's constant body scanning, there's constant paying attention, there's constant observation, there's calling out some drafters, which in the beginning on the first loop of the bike was interesting. There was a bunch of drafting of people coming up to me because I knew I'm pretty far ahead based off the swim. Um, and then because of all the climbing and because of the challenges of how that course laid out, the good thing was the drafting went away. Um, you just can't draft on a climbing course like that because people don't have the strength to maintain the pace of the front person pulling the draft group and things emptied out quite nicely in that respect because the drafters blew themselves up. I mean, it was pretty interesting. There was a couple guys I called out saying, literally, you guys are cheating. Please recognize that. But, um, you know, they ignored it. And sure enough, by the halfway through the second loop, just going backwards, and I would say they lost a good 20, 30 minutes just on the third loop alone because they blew themselves up so badly on the first loop and a half on the bike trying to draft and keep up with people that were way out of their league. So um, that was interesting to observe, but also what was interesting to observe is how um, the, the staying tactical throughout the race is become such an important component if you're looking to have an age group result. And what that means is seeing who passes you, um, their ability to cycle, how efficiently they're cycling, how they look potentially as a runner, and then taking that into account with regards to, well, this is not somebody I should be riding with because they clearly are way stronger of a cyclist than, than me. Or are they somebody who you can see is putting forth too much of an effort to move themselves forward in the race, but you know that's just going to blow up and eventually come back to us. And as I say, in every Ironman, and oftentimes in a half Ironman as well, most anybody can do the swim and bike portion of an Ironman well. Most anybody can swim steady and push themselves over the edge on the bike. It's how you run in a triathlon, in an Ironman, as well in a half Ironman, that truly turns it into a triathlon, of course, duh, but also that truly turns it into the performance of a result, of a time, of a placing that you want. And with a good run, the entire sport opens up to you with regards to what you could display with regards to placing and with regards to your overall time. Without a good run, that will never, ever get to your potential. The sport has been littered over 25, 30 years with some phenomenal bikers, bikers. But if they can't run and display their bike fitness on the run by having the best possible run relative to the age group, relative to the pro field, it doesn't matter. 
I mean, we saw it again this past Sunday, a small example, but I have hundreds of examples of age groupers, but in this case, a pro, a pro cyclist, one of the best, you know, cyclists that America has produced over the last, you know, 10 years, great bike split, but went backwards on the run. And sure, he's probably looking to gain experience on how to pace it and cycling and so forth with regards to a marathon on the back end. But you can't overdo the bike with the experience and the output that you have on the bike and try to show it on the bike. You have 140.6 miles to have the best possible result. We don't want the best possible result or to be the best possible person at 114 miles in T2. To have one of the slower marathons and to be passed is a terrible feeling, even as a professional, um, versus having a solid bike, maybe not even the best bike, maybe not even the bike that you're capable of, but all that energy that you're not using on the bike, you can display on the run. All the energy that you could be using on the bike, you're displaying on run speed. Because for example, for somebody who can bike a 420 um, like this pro did in Canada, had they gone a 435, 15 minutes slower for them, um, would have been not only crazy slow for them, but the efficiency by which they're getting through the course the bike course and how they're able to hydrate and fuel will set them up in T2 as if the day had just barely started versus any type of fatigue. And then without the years of running in this person's legs, they can still have a chance and an opportunity to get close to the potential of the running that they're capable of, the numbers that they see in training in order to have the best possible total day. But in this case, 420 and then going backwards on the marathon is exactly the pacing and the strategy that I talk about with age groupers and pros alike. Until you can do the bookends right, swim and run. There's no sense in putting too fast of a bike in there. Because this person, for example, could always increase their bike. We all can always get faster and increase our effort on the bike. But knowing that we can run, and I know these are crazy numbers, but knowing we can swim a 55 and run a three-hour marathon, now we have a sub-four-hour bookend component, right? And with a sub-four-hour bookend component, or if that's for you, let's say you are newer to the sport, but you're pretty fit, if you can swim a 110, 115 and run a 330, right? Again, so now you're talking um, a sub five hour with transition. The bookends, now if you bike six hours, you know you're capable of a sub 11 day. And that's a nice feeling to have versus swimming 115, let's say, and biking a 530, right? Now you're at um, 645, but you then run a 415, now you're at 11.30, 11.45 or transitions. So again, there's a very specific way and you always want the knowledge of knowing that you're able to run well in an Ironman, in a half Ironman. And for example, even this past weekend, knowing, I mean, the bike was 
in control for me, but no matter who would have passed me, I knew that running is going to display itself to the best of my current fitness, other than swimming, better than the bike. And so I knew I had that still ahead of me and that I would have an opportunity to show running legs versus trying to do too much on the bike. It's 140.6 miles of a race. It's not 130, it's not 120, it's not 114, and it's surely not 100. And we want to use all the real estate out there to have the best outcome, not the partial real estate. And if we use all 140.6 miles to have the best possible outcome, that means you get to spread out the speed, the fitness, the energy, the the tactics all throughout that and have the best possible outcome. It sets you up for success. Well, then rolling into T2, um, feeling pretty good, starting to really heat up. Um, got passed on the bike by somebody in my age group within the last, you know, three, four miles. But um, super nice guy. He was, uh, he sort of introduced himself as he rode by me and, um, we had a few words of just encouragement and uh, laughs. And uh, so he got into transition a little bit ahead of me, which was fine. I um, I knew that I was looking forward to a pretty steady run. I didn't know how long my fitness would carry me with regards to an Ironman. I hadn't done any running on pavement enough yet, but I took it for what it's worth. And I knew experience and my running legs would at least position me to make um, an impact on the race. So coming out of transition two and having fueled well and hydrated well on the bike, I felt pretty good right away. And I was not familiar with this run course. So it's a two loop run course. And I was looking forward to just running the first loop on feel and form and footwork and technique and bounce and just relaxed pacing for what my legs give me, not with regards to effort, but with what the leg turnover and the course undulations and how it unfolds allows my legs to just carry me. And that was the entire first loop. The first loop felt long, <laughs> was, was further than I thought. It's one of those where you might say, well, what do you mean further than you thought? The first loop had to be 13.1 miles or 13 miles approximately. Well, it was sort of an out and back part of this course. And you're surprised how far out you go. <laughs> you keep looking at your watch saying, are you kidding me? How much further can this go? Because I still got to get back to town in order to make this um a 13 mile loop. And when you're at the far point of the loop and it's eight miles, you're going, huh, well, maybe there's some other way into town, or maybe the first loop is longer than the second loop, or, you know, your mind plays tricks on you. And then the course also had an ability to play tricks on you because um, they turned the 70.3 people around before they turn the Ironman folks around. So you had to run further out along this beautiful lake um, to make it the Ironman course. And so you couldn't see where the turnaround was and your brain was starting to really mess with you and play tricks on you. But overall, that first loop was quite controlled and just whatever your legs, my legs gave me. And I realized 
quite quickly that the pace was dropping off and that um, I didn't have the legs and the fitness to sort of push any further. It is what it is. Nor did I not want to really dig that deep for something that I just needed to finish and um, have an interest with regards to training and recovery and another event or two and wanting to be smart all day, not um, jeopardizing any of the rest of my plans for the season. I started off on the first loop with um, some chews that I had and uh, I didn't take those in right away. I had two gels instead. And again, I was missing my T2 food because I never put that in in the morning. So I was missing the salt and any T2 food. But I knew they had gels on the course, which on a 95 degree day, in the meantime, it's getting quite hot. Um, a chocolate gel or a vanilla gel does not taste good. So that was part of the process of forcing it down somewhat. But I had a gel at three at six and at nine, I had some chews. And so I probably had a total, if you look at it all, on the run of uh, 300, 400, 500, about 600 calories. Um, very light because as of about 14, I had no more calories. I was planning to go on Coca-Cola from that point on. I was just, it was getting too hot and the gels were just not going down well. Um, but that being said, um, plenty of energy and fueling on the first loop, drinking every other aid station with um, water. Um, the other, the opposite aid stations in between was just a sip here and there and pouring the rest on me, ice on me, water over my head, splashing myself um, down my back just to keep everything as cool as possible as we're exposed to a fair amount of sun. The, the Canada course is nice because you do run through um, the woods and some trails and some shaded areas, but then there's spots where you're completely exposed and it just at those temperatures exposed just brings the temperature up on your body very quickly. What I found was interesting though, it never got too hot never got too uncomfortable. And it's like I was saying earlier, I think that week on the East Coast and the heat and the humidity of 95 degrees really mentally got me familiar with being uncomfortably hot. And I never got uncomfortably hot on that run. The beauty is also, because I've talked about this a lot in the past, because our body doesn't heat up um, in an Ironman like this until um, later in the day, your tolerance and your ability to deal with the heat is completely different from a core inside out standpoint than if that was already the sensation at eight or nine in the morning, like it is in tropical environments, let's say like a Malaysia or a Kona, Hawaii, where as of 9, 10 a.m., you already feel your body's overheating from the inside and therefore you have to manage the day completely different. I never felt myself overheating from the core out until probably the last four or five miles of the run. And even there, I probably hadn't managed myself properly in order to ensure that that wouldn't happen to me. Second loop of the run, the wheels started not falling off, but things just started uh, running out of fitness, I call it. Um, and not a question of the heart or the lungs or the ability, but more just 
um, muscularly dealing with the pounding of the pavement, those miles that I was missing. But the beauty is, and this is what I want to share with everybody because it's quite important with regards to your training. All I did on the second loop was focus on footwork, posture, core engagement, and running form. And allowing that the leg turnover, which I wanted to keep as high as the first loop um, and, and light and quick turnover, just focusing on those three things or four things on my posture, form, footwork, lightness, and cadence, I knew that would get me to the finish line fast enough. Again, I have the luxury in triathlon of knowing exactly what place I'm in because of the swim and being able to manage the day in front of me by whoever has passed me. It's easy to count one or two or three people and then work my way through those people back to the front if that's something I'm looking to do. Um, this past weekend, it, 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 I mean, of course, it felt good to be running on the front, but if somebody would have passed me, um, and there were there were definitely runners faster than me in this race, um, I would have been totally okay with that because my day unfolded the way exactly the way I wanted my day to unfold. I had told my friends and Emily, my better half, um, plot prior that I wanted to bike a five thirty run a 3.30 and swim around 50. And that's exactly how the day unfolded. So I was dead on with my numbers. And if somebody would have gone to 9.50 or 9.55 or even 9.59 a few minutes ahead of me, I'm not sure I would have pushed or um, put forth the effort in order to win the age group. It just unfolded the way it did. Um, but of course, one runs relaxed one runs in control, one can dictate the pace and the form and the feel and the footwork and the output when you are the one up front and can observe others either catching you or working their way up in the age group because there's enough out and backs on this course where you can manage yourself through that. Now, that being said, also, um, Keep in mind, my bike, I think, was 20th in the age group, and my run was 20th in the age group. So if it were not for my swim, my day would have been completely different. Um, sure, it's pretty consistent, but that is what it is with regards to what bike fitness I had and run fitness I had. And because of the dramatic um, swim effect that I have through my years of swimming, it allows for that average to work out to the front of the field. And yeah, and that's sort of how the day went. I would say the wheels came off at around mile 22. I was, I was done. I hadn't eaten enough. Um, at that point, I was running out of fuel. And what that, how that highlighted itself was that the Coke never had the effect of feeling really good. And B, usually when I start Coke around 14, 15, I have, you know, 10 miles to go, 11 miles, an hour and a half to go approximately. Well, this time it was an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> and so um, those 15, 20, 30 minutes of surviving on fumes versus usually 10, 
maybe 10, 12 minutes is a different sensation. And um, yeah, I definitely hit the wall and was done and had to struggle my way into the finish. Um, and that is just miles and pounding and specific training for an Ironman, which I hadn't done. Specific training being long 16-mile runs off of a bike. Uh, specific training being longer bike rides with more runs off those bikes. And not long runs, but um, 20, 30, 40 minutes, but frequently. And so, again, on the bike, my fitness ran out at about 100 miles. And on the run, my fitness ran out at about 22 miles. Now, that being said, after 14 to 22, that was just hanging on to focus on form, footwork, technique, and so forth. It wasn't any type of comfort in there. It was more um, surviving on the mantras that I was telling myself, which was focused on footwork, technique, and so forth. And so that day unfolded exactly the way I'd hoped for it to unfold, um, completed everything that I wanted to complete, and um, re-familiarized myself with Ironman. And while that was nice to refamiliarize myself and feel it all and observe it all and get reacquainted with all the sensations and therefore knowing what I would need to train if I did want to continue or return to triathlon. But yeah, no, I'm not ready to return yet. <laughs> I still need some time. And so, yeah, that's uh, pretty much how the racing part of Canada worked. All right, so now that Ironman Canada's over and um, I'm in the recovery post-Ironman part of the week, just some observations there. Overall, um, what we want to do is focus on lots of fluids, lots of good foods, lots of sleep, um, and lots of recovery the days post an Ironman. And of course, those are those are all very obvious, duh. But um, we tend to want to just let go and eat a bunch of fries, um, down a bunch of ice cream, and, um, you know, just have a week of unstructured uh, fun with regards to diet, with regards to fuel, with regards to hydration, i.e. beer, um, and so in an ideal world, when getting ready for another event in four weeks, um, that's how I would go about it. <laughs> Reality is that I do eat a bunch of junk food and uh, <laughs> drink a bunch of beer and not overthink it. I wouldn't say junk food. I, I rarely eat junk food. But, you know, the hamburger and um, a variety of different foods that I usually um, wouldn't do in a main training phase, um, do come up and uh, just having some um, relaxed days here with doing whatever the body desires, craves, is part of that first week post Ironman. The body, my body, luckily is all back to normal, feels great, did some swimming and some cycling class and I'm running today um, and today's Thursday post Ironman on Sunday. And um, yeah, overall, just happy to have done an Ironman, feel good, come out injury free, no niggles, no aches, no nothing, and ready to get ready for 
Swim Run World Championships in a couple of weeks in Sweden. I have a variety of travel leading up to that. I'll be in Boulder and Vail next week. I'll be in Snow Basin, Utah the following week, and then off to Sweden and Germany to see some family the week after. But until then, plenty of swimming, plenty of running, plenty of prep for Otillo, working with my partner um, in Tahoe on a couple days in between to make sure that we're in sync. And yeah, overall, that's the next 10-hour event. So clipping off the 10-hour events as we're going through, 10-hour plus event for the 62-mile run, 10-hour event at an Ironman, hopefully 10-hour event or maybe less at uh, Attilo. And then uh, fingers are still crossed with regards to Ultraman 2018. Um, I did speak to Ultraman and the race director, and it does not look like the chances are very good with regards to getting in um, based off the applications that they have and the people that have automatically qualified or automatically get in. Um, there's not much left. So all I can do is keep my fingers crossed and see who might not be taking their entry or who might be declining it or who might not want to do the modified course this year because of the volcano erupting in Hawaii. But if Ultraman does not unfold, um, I think with this past Ironman and the as smoothly as it went, and how it felt, I'm happy with how the season is unfolding. Either way, with regards to fitness and re-engaging with triathlon and uh, seeing if I'm ready to return to it yet, I'm not. And uh, yeah, I already have um, ideas and plans if Ultraman does not happen, but all of that always entails um, ultra-endurance fitness and the ability to have a platform from where we, I, and the whole approach that I take to coaching so many of you is that you're six to eight weeks away from specificity to taking on any adventure that we're looking for. So, and this year is an example of exactly that, that I preach to many of my athletes in that going from a 100K trail run to an Ironman to now a Tillo to whatever the next adventure is, never being far away to take on whatever adventure presents itself or um, is exciting and you have always been passionate to do. And sure enough, life's schedule has freed up and you can jump on it and do those things that you have always been excited to do. But didn't want to have to build up months and months of fitness until you knew that you're actually into the event or that you qualified for the event or that you've been invited. And instead having this base layer of fitness that you're only six to eight weeks away of always of being able to jump on to whatever endurance adventure dreams you may have. And so that's, that's where we stand currently. So I hope my uh, post-race download on uh, Ironman Canada wasn't too boring. I hope you enjoyed some tidbits there. Um, and again, that you had some value in pulling some information, approaches, strategies, techniques, fueling, hydration, whatever it is out of it so that you too can be a better adventure, uh, ultra endurance athlete as well as um, 
taking on your next adventure with just that knowledge as part of your toolkit arsenal to take this on. A couple last observations with regards to the race. Um, and I made some notes here. One, um, I did not warm up for the race. I don't, I don't believe that much in a warm up for an Ironman. Um, because that's what you have so much real estate and time and you're in a wetsuit and you're about to get in for a 2.4 mile swim and those first 10-15 minutes of a swim um, if you start off slower and build into it that will only have positive outcomes further down the day further down the race even further down the swim for you because that anxiety that sensation that shortness of breath that tightness in your shoulders, that quick um, accumulation of what feels like lactic acid buildup in your shoulders and your arms, and that constriction of the wetsuit in your freestyle stroke, all that can be limited or even avoided with a gradual slow warm-up as part of the gun already having gone off. And no, not starting off too easy, but surely allowing yourself to settle into it, to build into the swim. It's a long day. And taking the mindset of already using that swim to say, I'm going to use this as part of my warm-up, I think is a successful strategy for many. Uh, shorter races, of course, you want to be more explosive for an Olympic distance right off the swim. Maybe if you're looking to be aggressive in a half Ironman as well. But even there, there's so much time and so much real estate and swimming a minute slower early on in the swim with regards to overall time um, and then speeding up gradually and settling into a faster and faster pace on the swim, um, I think is plenty of warm up and a good mindset to have with regards to an Ironman or a half Ironman triathlon. The other thing I noticed, of course, and many of you know this, but there is definitely a point at which solids, in my case, cliff bars, you just can't eat anymore. And that's why I always stress having a variety of different foods available. Um, at some point, you're forcing the food down. And even that process alone, forcing something down, um, will have effects on your stomach and will have effects on the frequency of your fueling. You will avoid the fueling almost subconsciously because your, your mouth and your taste and your mind is already rejecting the flavor, the consistency, the sugar, whatever it is. But however it's not going down, um, don't fight it. Try to find alternatives. For me, that was wafers. For me, that was chews. For me, that was, you know, just waiting a little bit and then maybe trying to re-engage with a different flavor cliff bar. If that doesn't work, that's it. They're done for the day. For example, I hit a point on the bike uh, pretty late, but I knew this was going to be my last cliff bar. I knew I wasn't going to take any on the run, A, because I don't um, eat cliff bars on the run, but B, I just knew that was it going to be it from a flavor perspective and that I'm over it. And so as of that point, I knew I had options ahead of me. Chews, gels, wafers, even a, even drinking more caloric-dense um, um, fluids on the run. So 
Don't fight yourself to eat more solids. Don't fight yourself to continue on the product that you trained on. Instead, train on a variety of products so that come race day when we all know, we've all hit the point where we are overloaded by whatever food that is, whether that's gels, whether that's wafers, whatever it is. Um, At some point, we're overloaded by it and we don't want to limit our um, success by a fueling strategy by forcing things down. The other thing is that I noticed I would... I can't get over how in triathlon now people are descending. And now, of course, Canada truly had some 10% um, fast descents, really descending on your bike. But how many people I saw descending some of these steep downhills at high, high speeds doing what the Tour de France riders are do, where they move their butt off the seat and put it on the top bar and descend, leaned, crouched down, um, all the way body forward, sitting on the top bar instead of the seat and crouching behind their handlebars like that. I mean, it, first of all, it's age group triathlon. Um, I would not want to risk the rest of my day. I would not want to risk getting seriously injured because somebody else's descending isn't as good as mine or crosses into the road or coming around a turn and somebody not somebody being there or there was a bear spotted on the course like a little cub walking across the street there's a zillion scenarios the time gains of that descending strategy are seconds right and again if that's where you're looking for the seconds versus Overall, at the end of the day, there's probably 20 other points where I could find you minutes. It was it was crazy to see that type of descending. And don't get me wrong, I descend very fast, but I stay on my seat and I crouch down and I get out of the wind, but I don't move forward and sit like um, Chris Froome and those guys do on their bikes descending at the Tour de France. Those guys are professional cyclists. The road is closed. There are no beginners and amateurs on the course. They're familiar with the roads. Those roads have been cleaned, swept, repaved for the tour. This, at Ironman, they weren't swept. They weren't repaved. There were some some chunky parts in there. And for them to descend like that, I just can't get over why one would risk so much and a, a future outcome for one, maybe at a, at a descent like that was that was maybe three minutes long, that descending gets you maybe three seconds per descent. So you do that maybe five times over the three loops where you have an opportunity to get that type of speed. You buy yourself maybe 15, 20, max 30 seconds for that risk. Crazy to me. Um, And I would tell any one of my athletes, if that's where you're searching for time, well, then we've got bigger problems. Um, Now, we've achieved great things because if we um, are looking to gain 30 seconds overall, that's it, and that there's nothing else to squeak out anywhere else, (laughs) then you are a world-class, world-class, top-level, at the highest elite, top three in the world type of triathlete that you then are eking for seconds versus minutes. And we've maximized the strategy in so many other spots.
I guarantee that some of those people descending, those age groupers, lost minutes just in transitions or bad, or bad running form or bad uh, aid station strategy or um, sitting up in other spots on the bike course or walking on the run or um, you know, bad swim line all those things, but doing that at 45 miles, 50 miles an hour, flying down the hill, man, um, again, not how I would race, not how I would coach, not what I would recommend. Um, I believe in longevity <laughs> in this sport and in our approach and in our health. And it was weird to see that, uh, weird. I'm not criticizing it. It's more just, it was weird to see. And I find it interesting that that's where we're looking for seconds, not for the bigger picture stuff. So some, uh, some observations of Ironman Canada.